There are some jobs more hazardous than others, but who would have ever thought that becoming a waiter would prove to be so dangerous, in fact, fatal? Stephen, along with six others, started out waiting on tables, but it led to him confronting and upsetting the religious establishment of his day. It led to him delivering the longest recorded sermon in all of Acts. It led to him dying a horrific and violent death for his faith and beliefs, earning him the reputation as the first Christian martyr. And it led to creating a situation where the gospel spread like wildfire. And Stephen's story is fascinating. It's challenging, and in terms of the early church, it's a highly influential story. It's a key story within the big story. And we find it in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7, which is on page 1098 of our Pew Bibles. And so I'd like to just start reading from verse 2 of chapter 6. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Let's just pause there. So prayer... And ministry of the word was the responsibility of the twelve. Whereas seven others were chosen to wait on tables. To feed the hungry. Let's look at the first half of verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group and they chose Stephen. A man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Down to verse 8. Now Stephen... A man full of God's grace and power did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. And so it's clear that Stephen's ministry expanded and actually began to combine words and deed. That alongside feeding the poor, Stephen spoke truth into the lives of other people. It's a great example of the essential mesh of evangelism and social action. And Stephen's God-inspired words of wisdom, it disturbed the thinking of others. They created tension, they provoked a reaction, as God-inspired words often do. But because the opposition couldn't argue with Stephen, they turned or they resorted to dirty action, to dirty tricks. Look at verses 11 and 13, because it says what they did was they persuaded, which means they more likely bribed some men to spread vicious rumours and tell lies about him. It's a common tactic. It's one that's still employed today. If you don't like what someone says, dig up a bit of dirt. Twist the truth. 
Do whatever it takes to dismantle that person's character and wreck their reputation. And then you don't have to worry about what it is they're saying. As I say, it happens all the time. Verse 12. So they stirred up the people and the elders of the teachers of the law. And they seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. And they produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. You see, there was nothing more sacred to the Jews and nothing more precious to them than their temple and their law. And so to speak against either of them was asking for trouble. In fact, it was considered blasphemous. Stephen was on thin ice. But look at verse 15. Because as the Sanhedrin stared at him, they observed that his face was like the face of an angel. Now what that looked like is anybody's guess. But for these devout Jews, this would have triggered important memories. They would have known, they would have recalled that whenever Moses came back down Sinai carrying the two tablets under his arm, that others, including his own brother Aaron, commented on his radiant face. You can read about it in Exodus 34. And so at a certain level, you could argue that this face-like-an-angel moment for Stephen was a similar experience. And it could be interpreted as this divine sign of God's approval on him. And either way, the atmosphere was starting to build. And as the atmosphere started to build, Stephen launched into a famous, detailed, and relatively speaking, long speech. It runs for 50 plus verses in our Bibles. And as I've said, it's the longest recorded sermon in all of Acts. But before I say a little bit about the content, and then a lot about the response to it, look at the various ways that Stephen has been described to us in chapter 6. He's been described as full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of God's power. Stephen was, if you like, a tanked up Christian. He was filled with striking features which enabled him to be who he was and to do what he did. Twice in these verses we're told Stephen was full of of the Holy Spirit. And if you turn to uh, verse 55 of chapter 7, you discover it's there again. That's how Stephen is described, full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he was a living, breathing product of Pentecost. He was a Spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ. He wasn't operating in his own strength. He was infused by the Spirit of God. The same Spirit that fills And fuels our lives today in the 21st century. Do we actually believe that? Like do we? He was also full of wisdom. An inspired wisdom that created a capacity for dealing with intense situations. A wisdom that meant he could speak into and handle uncomfortable circumstances. As people argued with him, it's obvious that his answers and his responses were wise. And in many ways, this was a fulfillment of a promise Jesus had made. For I will give you words, said Jesus, and I will give you wisdom 
that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Do you know many of us live outside of our comfort zones at times? In all kinds of different contexts where what we say next, where what we do next is critical. And therefore the need for you and I to be full of wisdom is unquestionable. And therefore the advice that we find in James is surely eternally relevant. That if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. When was the last time you asked God to grant you wisdom and fill you with wisdom? Stephen was full of it. Next, we see that Stephen was full of faith. A faith that many or most of us here this evening possess. Exactly the same faith. That's why we're here. We're people of faith. But listen to one commentator's comment on Stephen's faith. His faith was not different in kind from the faith that all Christians have but exceptional in the extent to which he was willing to trust Christ, to take him at his word, and to risk all for Christ's sake. Now, based on Stephen's story, that seems a fair comment. But should it be regarded as exceptional faith? Can we not think of other Christians who have shown similar faith? I'm convinced we can And therefore, it would be dangerous to consider Stephen a special case. And as we personalize this, let's ask ourselves, how full of faith are you, am I, at this stage of our journey? How full of faith are you? Are you willing to trust Christ? Do you take Jesus at his word? Are you prepared to risk all for him? Those are faith stretching thoughts, but surely they are important questions to ask ourselves as we seek to deny selves, pick up our crosses, and follow Jesus. The fourth description of Stephen that we find here is that he was full of grace. In other words, Stephen was gracious. And he reflected a Christ-like character. And for me, this is one of the most challenging aspects of Stephen's life. Particularly whenever you see this grace in operation. And to do that, we kind of need to go to the end of the story for a moment. So flick over to chapter 7 and verse 50. Because while rocks are raining down on him. And please don't miss how just horrendous and painful and distressing a scene this is. But while rocks are raining down on him, look at Stephen's reaction. He prays that God would not hold this sin against his killers. In other words, Stephen embraced the example of Jesus. Stephen took the teaching of Jesus to heart. Do you know the call and challenge to love our enemies is often just seen as A nice theory. But surely, let's be honest, no one 
really does it. No one can do it. It's impossible. Okay, Jesus did it as he hung on the cross, but we're not Jesus. Neither was Stephen. Stephen shows us that the impossible ethic of enemy love is indeed possible. It's costly, but it's possible. And therefore, you do not need to be divine in order to do what Jesus did. Stephen's belief and behavior were consistent. Here was someone who embraced the example of Jesus, who took the teaching of Jesus to heart, and then actually lived it out. And therefore, in what must have been a horrendous point in his life, as people stood there, crushing him with rocks, he prayed, Father, don't hold this sin against him. There was no contradiction with this guy. And I find it incredibly challenging. Stephen's gracious, Christ-like character was evident to all, even when, humanly speaking, it made no sense. But then again, Grace is like that. It doesn't make sense. And then finally, we read that Stephen was full of power. Verse 8 of chapter 6 actually combines these last two uh, descriptions. It says he was full of grace and power, a striking combination. One commentator refers to this as sweetness and strength. I'm not sure I like that. Sweetness does nothing for me to enhance my understanding of grace. But strength, strength makes sense. And in this story, the strength that Stephen displayed as he spoke, as he debated, as he preached, as he confronted, and the strength that he displayed as he died is extraordinary. Stephen was a man full of power. Jesus had promised that his disciples would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Stephen was evidence of that promise fulfilled. So, Stephen was a tanked up Christian. But what about us? Are we full of the Holy Spirit? Are we full of wisdom? Are we full of faith this evening? Are we full of grace? Are we full of power? Can we be? Can we be? And if so, hands up who needs a refill. Let's now just briefly turn to Stephen's speech, which, like most sermons, has received a mixed reaction from a wide variety of people down through the years. Some see Stephen's sermon as uninteresting, dull, and quite incoherent. Others see it as clever, skillful, and well-argued. But starting with Abraham, Stephen traces Israel's history via Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, and Solomon. You can read it for yourself. I'm not going to go into it in detail. But remember that the two sacred cows, so to speak, the two no-go areas which Stephen had spoken against were what? The temple and the law. And in his speech, in his sermon, he addresses both. He actually goes out of his way to emphasize that God's presence is not limited to any particular place. It never has been, it never can be, it never will be. God cannot be imprisoned in a building. And that kind of dealt with the whole temple issue. And he also exposed Israel's past unfaithfulness to the law and to the prophets. 
But then in this sudden change of pace as he gets towards the end of his sermon, he gets personal. And he begins to apply his sermon to those who are listening, which is always a dangerous thing to do. Look at verses 51 to 53 of chapter 7 as he starts getting personal. He says, you stiff-necked people. In other words, you're stubborn. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, which basically meant you're heathens at heart and you're deaf to the truth. And just to add insult to injury, he then says, do you know something, see you lot, you're no different from your ancestors. And Stephen's on a roll now. And so to finish, as he applies this, he goes for the jugular. He declares them guilty of sinning against the Holy Spirit, sinning against the Messiah, sinning against the law. Verse 51, look at it. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Verse 52, you betrayed and murdered the righteous one. You sinned against the Messiah. And then in verse 53, and by the way, you haven't obeyed the law either. And there's no closing hymn or prayer. There's definitely no time for coffee. There's just a bitter reaction. The crowd are incensed by this. And they lose it. And as they lose it, Stephen gets a glimpse of heaven. And he sees Jesus standing, not sitting, at the right hand of God. And as far as the crowd are concerned, that's it now. They can't take it anymore. And so it says they cover their ears. They yell at the top of their voices. They rush him. They drag him out of the city. And without mercy, they stone him to death. And so Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. But he's certainly not the last. People prepared to die for Jesus have been part of our Christian heritage for years. And you know the incredible thing is they still are. And it's reckoned that 176,000 Christians were martyred from mid-2008 to mid-2009. It's astonishing. Brian prayed for those who this very day are being persecuted because of their faith. And many of you are probably aware, and for me this is fascinating, that it's from the Greek word for martyr that we get our word witness. And so when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, he recognized that the stakes are high here. That suffering and death are a distinct possibility if you follow me. In fact, it's a definite risk. That the cost of following Jesus and being his witness is very real. And today the price that some are paying for that is exceptional. And Stephen was the first Christian martyr. And as you engage with his story, it provides us with a couple of insights regarding the mindset and the characteristic of all martyrs. Stephen, the first, but even those who today have lost their lives because they believe in Jesus. And to start with, martyrs don't keep their mouths shut. 
They don't keep their faith private. Martyrs don't die for their convictions. Martyrs die for expressing their convictions. And that's a very different thing. And it is true that the moment that you start opening your mouth for Jesus or about Jesus, or the minute you start speaking out for those things that he is passionate about, like justice and righteousness and truth, that's at the point where many people start becoming martyrs in many contexts. For us, here, now, probably won't lead to the ultimate sacrifice. But it is likely that the minute you start expressing your convictions, you will be subject to ridicule and rejection. To avoid martyrdom, all you've got to do is simply keep your mouth shut. You will not get into trouble for being silent. The problem And that's the wrong word. The problem for martyrs and witnesses of Jesus Christ is that they cannot keep quiet. Second characteristic. They don't mind when and where they speak. So it's not just about what you say. It's about the environment and the timing. For example, you stand up in Belfast and say you belong to Jesus and frankly not too many people are going to be bothered about it. You stand up in Algeria or in North Africa where Jenny was, you say the same thing, and the consequences may be extreme. But let's bring it a bit closer to home. You express faith, or a certain perspective on faith, or a faith issue in here, and by and large, people will thank you. People will engage with you. You express a kingdom value or a teaching of Jesus tomorrow in the staff room, in the hospital ward, or in the classroom, and you'll probably be in for a bit of hassle. But martyrs don't tend to be influenced by their setting, or by public opinion, or by cultural trends, because martyrs have this unnerving ability and tendency to speak up wherever, with whoever, and whenever they believe it's important. Stephen certainly did. And what happens? Martyrs are perceived as being radical. But the danger here in stressing a martyr's willingness to speak up and out in any place at any time is that you paint the picture of some brash, finger-waving, almost ignorant individual who rides roughshod over people's feelings. And none of us want to be those sort of people. We've all had experience of those sort of people. And by and large, we don't, we don't feel that great about them. But it would be wrong to think like that based on the story of the first martyr. And so Ajit Fernando, in his commentary on Acts, and I'm nearly done, reflecting on chapter 6 and 7, identifies the call to be winsome radicals. And he says, this is one of the most important challenges facing Christians today. And I like this phrase. I like this idea. Winsome radicals. And it comes from the recognition that alongside Stephen's willingness to speak up and to speak out and to confront he was a radical is the fact that he was a man who was full of wisdom. And he was full of grace. And he was full of holiness. And the love of God, hence his face like an angel. Hence his dying prayer for the forgiveness of those who were killing him. Stephen clearly got upset about those things that make God angry, and so should we. 
but he was not unnecessarily aggressive. Stephen operated out of an experience of grace, and therefore he reflected grace. And as we all know, what we are called to do is speak the truth. Yes, be radical. But how are we to do it? Speak the truth in love. How do you maintain the balance? How do you avoid at one extreme becoming unhelpfully uptight and negative, ranting and raving at every opportunity? But also, how do you avoid at the other extreme saying nothing, keeping your head down and standing back as God's name, God's reputation and God's values are dishonored? It's a good question. How do you maintain that balance today? Well, for me, the term winsome, radical, strikes the right note. But let me just tease it out a little further. Because as you look at Stephen's example, as I say, you discover that on three occasions he was described as being what? Full of the Holy Spirit. Today, one of the key rules of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine is to produce fruit. Those Christian characteristics of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And therefore, spirit-filled Christians in the 21st century are those people who increasingly reflect those nine attributes. That's how you can identify a spirit-filled Christian. That as they express countercultural views, as they speak provocatively, as they stand up for truth, they do it exposing love, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, etc. They're radical, yes. They're also winsome. Dictionary definition of winsome, attractive or appealing in character. Let's finish the story. Stephen paid the ultimate price for his faith. And according to chapter 8 and verse 1, a great persecution broke out that day against the church, and everyone, bar the apostles, scattered. But just in case anyone was tempted to think, well, that's it. That's the end of this little group. You quickly discover, according to verse 5, that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And so the persecution unleashed that day was like a tornado to a dandelion. It spread the seeds everywhere. Stephen's story propelled witnessing Christians out into the world, and it still does. Because you know what? Martyrs inspire us. Martyrs encourage us. But more importantly, martyrs call us to a greater commitment to Jesus. And so may we go from here this evening as winsome, tanked-up radicals, willing to speak out and speak up in any context and at any time as waiters, teachers, doctors, lawyers, editors, pharmacists, planners, journalists, students, and who knows, our vocations may also prove to be rather dangerous.